G'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Mirrigan Unmanned Systems podcast, Drones for Good. Uh, today, I'm really excited to have uh, Jonathan Roberts here from the UAV Challenge. Morning, John. How are you? Morning, Andrew. Good, good. How are you? Really well. Hey, um, before we get into the challenge, I want to put it straight up front so everyone hears it. Congratulations on your, uh, your award that was awarded last week as part of the AUS um, uh, the AUS awards that the leadership component well, well done I think it's it's really well deserved oh thanks very much you know we were we were chuffed especially there were a lot of very strong finalists so we were slightly <laughs> surprised but we were very and you were one of those finalists of course Andrew um, <laughs> so commiserations um, um, but we, yeah we, we're we're very honoured to be given that award so thanks mate for I, AUS. I did consider cancelling this podcast after you beat me but I thought <laughs> I know, I've got to Man than that, and and make sure we do it anyway. <laughs> so congratulations! I think it's I think Thanks it's amazing. So interestingly, um, and and you're exactly correct. You know, there was it was a very very strong crowd, and um, you know, well done to you guys. And what I'm most excited about this podcast is I don't actually know much about the UAV challenge, despite it being in our you know, Queensland backyard. So I'm really looking forward to to getting stuck into it. Cool. Um, so before we talk about the challenge, though, I, I want to talk about you first as well. So obviously you're you're part of the challenge. You've been involved in the challenge, I think, since its inception. Um, yep. But can you give us your background? You obviously work at QUT. How did Jonathan Roberts end up, you know, part of a, a challenge that that is um, recognised across the drone industry as being pretty awesome? So I mean, I, so I started off, at, you know, at uni as people do as an engineer, and I did aerospace engineering. Uh, you know, so I was always into flying stuff. I love. You know, love things that fly. Got into spacecraft design at uni, um, and then I moved from the UK, as you can probably tell by my accent. Um, I moved to, to from the UK to Australia in 1995 and started work at CSIRO. So, what brought um, you out to Australia? Uh, I married an Australian woman. And oh, so lovely! So we, yep. So we came to Australia, and it was fantastic, and I've never regretted it. And in fact, I think I think today, by my calculations, is the day that I've lived in Australia longer than I lived in Britain. <laughs> so you're an Australian now, is that? That's right, that exactly. The, that's right. That's the benchmark. Perfect. The majority of my life. That's right. Um, so, so then I started. 95 in CSIRO? Yes, early 95 in CSIRO, where I was working with some fantastic colleagues in the area of mining robotics. So um, there was already a move in the mid-90s to try and um, throw robotic technology in, at the mining uh, mining problems. So we started work on um, semi-automating very large mining machinery, and big, big bits of kit, which was a, a lot of fun. Um, and we continued to do that for about a decade, and then we started diversifying into other into other areas. And in fact, actually, before that decade was over in 1999, we bought our first uh, radio-controlled helicopter at CSIRO. I remember going to the hobby shop with a colleague, Graham <laughs> Stanley, and we bought a uh, radio-controlled um, helicopter, and we decided we would get into um, the UAV area, which at the time not many people were doing, obviously 1999. Um, and this was one of these little um, petrol engine things, very hard to fly, not many electronic control systems back in the late 90s. Um, I had to become the test pilot, which was a bit of a nightmare job. I took a course <laughs> in how to radio control fly these things. Um, and then, you know, as we integrated sensors and computers on board to try and semi-automate the flying, you know, I was there to save the day should it go horribly wrong. 
um, you know, and then we kind of we built it up from that point. We of course continued research in in other things in in the mining industry and manufacturing and all sorts of things. So yeah, but but we had this in underwater robotics as well, and we had but we had this stream of research into unmanned aerial vehicles. Um, then in sort of about five years ago, I uh, I, I left CSIRO and moved to QUT. Um, figured it was time I taught people some stuff, right? And, and <laughs> yep. um, so, so that was kind of you know I thought I'd have a second half of my career, and so um, you know so that's that's what I did. And and since then I've obviously continued uh, my work with the UAV challenge and UAV research, but also then I'm now um, very much into manufacturing robotics and also medical robotics, which are you know a very important field, um, particularly in Australia and Queensland. Yeah, awesome. And I can already see another podcast coming up here in the future with us talking about you know potentially um, automation in the in the manufacturing industry and stuff too. So I think um, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, cool. Hey, so did you have you been part of the challenge since it since its inception? Yes, absolutely. I re- I remember the day that uh, I was in a taxi with my colleagues. Uh, George Curran, who was at CSIRO at the time, as well as I, and uh, the late Professor Rod Walker, who was at QUT uh, at the time. And the three of us were in a taxi in Sydney, and the idea sprung into life when we were going from to the airport, actually, from a restaurant. So, yeah, I, I remember <laughs> cool. it very clearly. It's <laughs> yeah, the Australian yeah. way, isn't it? The back of a taxi on the way to the airport coming up with, That's uh, right. with concepts exactly. and ideas. Yeah, exactly. So, so tell me about the challenge back then. So when, when was this? So that was in, so the, the idea came about in 2005 uh, and it came after there was a, a conference uh, held in Brisbane, um, which was kind of getting people from um, industry and government and potential end users and university people together really just over a couple of days to discuss the possible future UAV industry and what were the barriers to that happening, what's going to slow everything down what we could do to speed everything up. Um, so that conference uh, was, was fairly successful. And then I, I believe we then came up with the idea of the challenge a few weeks or months after that. Um, and we thought the, you know, we could actually address many of the problems that that conference had identified. And there, there were, of course, numerous problems back then. There was the idea that there weren't really the personnel to actually staff a UAV industry. We weren't necessarily... Mm. Um, educating people that way. There were um, regulatory problems um, and issues. Um, CASA had actually started to bring out their, their regulations, but we, everyone, of course, knew they would need to go further. Um, we then identified problems of insurance. Um, it, we could already see it was it was at the time it was not that set, it, not that easy to get someone to insure somebody to operate UAVs. So there was, because of lack of experience in the insurance industry and that sort of thing. Yep. Um, there was technology issues, you know, who was driving the technology. And then there was a public perception issue at the time. This has now changed, but at the time, um, UAVs were seen as military-only things. Um, the general public weren't very aware of non-military potential uses um, so, so we we could see that if we created something like the UAV challenge, we could try and progress all of those things at the same time, right? And sort of have this big sandpit where everyone could kind of play and try and uh, yeah, try and push push the industry along, basically. 
I think it's probably important to, to kind of note there that this is really early days. This is, um, you know, in 2005, I joined um, the, the, well, the Army set up its very first, you know, UAV dedicated um, unit and, and the Army was starting to work with some of these things. So this was really sort of cutting edge and, and um, very different and innovative back in 2005. Yeah, and we'd see we'd seen it in other in uh, you know ro- in robotics generally, which is my background. The competitions have have, have been quite common, and competitions have uh, driven you know a, a, a lot of technology. So um, we f- we figured it was, to, and there had actually been um, flying you know UAV competitions before. So this is not the first UAV competition, even though it was two thousand and five. Mm. There'd been others, but the others had all been. Uh, as you'd expect, they were more competitions uh, based within a, a, a short distance of where an operator was, you know, within line of sight, e- yeah. you know, even within, even within a, like a hundred metre radius of where everyone was. Uh, so what was missing was any competitions that would actually have UAVs fly away um, from those people. And that was kind of what was holding back a large segment of the industry. They weren't actually allowed to fly a decent distance away from the operator. So that's, that was where we could see the problems. Okay. And so what was the challenge uh, sort of seeking to do back then? What were sort of its main aims? So the main aim was, I mean, so I should also say we actually had two competitions at the time, which we run in parallel, which is one was a high school competition because we yep. wanted to address that issue of getting uh, young people infused and into uh, the industry that would eventually come along. Uh, and we also thought that would help very much with um, public perception um, and showing everybody that you know the, the, these uh, these UAVs could be used for these uh, civilian kind of purposes. So we had a high school competition, um, and then we had what we called the open competition, which was the flying a long way away from where uh, where the operator was. So in that that first competition was known as Outback Rescue, and the the scenario we came up with was. Um, we created this character called Outback Joe, who was this lost bushwalker who was uh, lost about uh, seven or eight kilometres away from the point of launch of the UAVs and teams had to develop a system to go find him, uh, drop him a water bottle and come back. Uh, and just that task in itself, had a, there's a whole lot of things have to be developed, you know, technology operating concepts uh, reliable in this all had to be done you know on the cheap we're not talking military budgets here um <laughs> and, you know so uh, you know how do we even got how we even as the the creators of the challenge how do we get insurance for that um so we were kind of so part of the challenge people thought uh, that the idea of a challenge was uh, it was a challenge for the competitors to solve this problem. It was actually also a challenge for us as the organisers to run the event um, under the frameworks that existed at the time and getting the insurance and stuff. So we, we saw all of it as a challenge, um, not, just the, you know, not just for the competitors. And how did, uh, and I know we're sort of 15 years on now, but, but back in 2005, how did you go engaging with CASA and, and getting people comfortable with you guys flying uh, you know, long distances with drones back then? Uh, yeah, we, it was always it was always okay actually. I mean, CASA, you know, had come out with their one hundred and one regulations, and and um, they were they were always um, very willing to to chat about um, you know what will come in the future. Um, I guess we built up a good rapport, and they kind of trusted us. 
Um, we made sure we consulted a lot. I mean, CASA were even, have even been sponsors of the challenge numerous times, actually, you know, so they actually um, help financially as well with the with running of the competition. So um, and we always had a, and still have a very, a very productive relationship. And I mean, I, you know, I, I could see that um, this was a great way of showing CASA what might be possible and testing things out in a relatively safe way so that we could you know because obviously when we're running the competition we've we you know we know the area we're operating in very well we let all the stakeholders know you know when we're flying over the land we let everybody know and get seek their permission you know so we can we can test ideas out you know in a relatively contained manner so which is a, the benefit for everybody really to see how things go so um yeah so CASA was always extremely extremely good um, yeah, nice. We had to deal with this. Yeah, and where was this run? Was this run up at Kingaroy from memory? That's right. Yes. Yeah. So the first yeah, many, okay. the first many years was um, from Kingaroy, and actually, in hindsight, that was a bit of a crazy decision of us to do that <laughs> because we actually operated from Kingaroy Airport. Yeah. Um, you know, which in hindsight is kind of stupid. Really, we should have probably. Uh, we made ourselves our life hard, right? So we made we made it even <laughs> more of a challenge um, because. We were there at an airport, which was, um, you know, of course, people knew it was there. There were no TAMs in place, so people knew we were operating from there. And the, the Royal Flying Doctors were using it when we were operating the competition, um, for, you know, water bombers, crop dusters, all those sorts of people. Um, so we made our life hard, but, um, <laughs> so, but it, that was probably good. That probably made us think about everything even more than we would have done should had we have been operating in some very remote location away from manned aviation but we were actually operating with manned aviation right from the start which is still a challenge today absolutely it is still a challenge mm. today so yeah so we're we're kind of proud of the fact that we managed to do that um back in the day yeah so fast forward 15 years um we're now in 2020 and and we should point out that unfortunately the the competition in september has been uh cancelled or postponed yeah we've had to postpone for a year so in the yep. open in the open competition we actually run on a two-year cycle where which gives teams kind of you know a, a year of getting everything ready and then the second year they sort of test and then um qualify and come along um so that actually started so this cycle was going to be 2019 2020 so in September, late September, we were running the uh, the Open Challenge in Dolby. Um, so we've moved the competition from Kingaroy to Dolby because we've now got a different mission, which I'll describe later. But that, yeah. yes, because of COVID-19, obviously teams can't travel, uh, they can't practice, they can't do anything. So we've simply delayed the event a year. So we're effectively on a three-year a three-year cycle for this one, this cycle only, and then hopefully we can get back to a two-year cycle. And unfortunately, we've had to completely, of course, cancel the high school competition this year, which mm. is a very upsetting for everybody. But there's there's no way around that. So, no, uh, we want to give everyone certainty as well. So we decided a few weeks ago that we really had no choice. Yeah, perfect. So, uh, so the UAV Challenge 2020. What are we uh, What are we looking to do? What are we seeking to achieve? What What's it all about now? So the yeah the open competition now is called medical rescue and this is uh, this this mission concept is that Outback Joe who you know you will note is always getting into trouble he's he's <laughs> kind of he's on his farm and he's had an accident in his shed uh, he's you know he's been maintaining his tractor he's had an accident in his shed um, he's managed to flick off a quick message for help 
um, from his phone, and then he's kind of, we've assumed he's collapsed because no one's heard from him. Um, and then the emergency, the first responders are on their way, um, you know, to his remote property to, to come and rescue him. Now, we've consulted, you know, with first responders about, because uh, we want realism here, about what, you know, what the first responders in these situations want. And the, the overwhelming feedback is first responders would love, when they're on the way, they would love to know ahead of time what what they're coming up against. You know, what's the uh, where are they going? Uh, what's it look like in the area of the person that's in trouble? Is the if you can get eyes on and audio on the person in trouble? You know, um, what state are they in? Are they breathing? Can you talk to them? Um, anything we can do to improve that situational awareness for the first responders while they're on route is uh, you know is what they want. Right, that that will massively help. So, I think that's uh, really cool, even, even that whole um, part you just explained then. You know, I, I do see a lot in the industry or, or in the industry, people building solutions that there is no problem for um, yes. as opposed to industry potentially seeking out the problems, which you guys have done and spoken to the emergency services and said, what do you need? How can we, how can exactly. we help? How can we provide situational awareness? So I think that's a, that's a yeah. really cool objective or design principle you guys have come up with. And that's kind of, and that's really why we're in it because of course we do debate every year. Is everything matured enough now for us to not run the UAV challenge? Um, but because it's, you know, we're tired, right? But, it's, uh, <laughs> but you know, every year we see that everyone wants the next capability and the next, you know, so we're like, yeah, we'll keep, we will push on, right? We'll push on for the good of everyone. So that's what we're doing. So, so this is about, yeah. So Outback Joe's in this shed. So teams have to launch, um, from about 10 kilometers away. Um, so we're not, obviously we're not doing the super long distance stuff. It just, it's yep. just from a, it will take too long for us to run a competition if we do that. So, so the teams actually are, are launching from 10 kilometers away. Um, we, we make them fly further. We make them fly about 20 kilometers. So they've got to fly to a certain point at a certain distance and then go back just to increase the, the flight distance. They've then got to, um, find the shed. We give them the location of the farm. But that's it. All we do is we say, here's some GPS coordinates of the farm generally. You figure everything else out because that's what a first responder would have. They wouldn't have a precise coordinate, you know, to the meter of where Joe is. They say, okay, we know he's at this farm. He's in a shed, right? Go from there. So they've then got to um, figure out which shed he's in, deploy, a, deploy something. It may be their own drone uh, the drone that's flown there, it may be a vehicle that they deploy on the ground to go in. It may be a little drone that they go off the big one. We, we simply don't care. We just want them to solve the problem. They've got to get something into the shed and get a video, a live stream video on, on Joe uh, and, an audio, and an audio stream as well. Uh, and we've got to, that's got to run for five minutes back to, back to the base, which is simulating the first responders being able to do some sort of situational awareness and maybe talk to Outback Joe, who you know, may still be conscious. So it's about getting five minutes of, um, of live video in that shed from a remote location. Right. That's, um, that's pretty cool. There must be some fairly innovative designs and, and thinking that some of the teams come up with. Yeah, absolutely. That, so people are coming up with all of those things I've just described with, you know, mini drones launching off big ones, uh, ground vehicles that are d dropped from the air or deployed on the air or the drone just flying in. Uh, but then it, drones that fly in have got to drop communication systems outside because communications is one of the big 
issues when you're flying into metal sheds many mm -hmm. kilometres away. That's, uh, that's very problematic. So we haven't kind of shied away from those issues. Mm -hmm. um, we've, you know, we know comms is one of the things that holds, that holds back the deployment of UAVs from, you know, uh, beyond line of sight and into realistic scenarios. So, um, so yes, we, we know that, that some of the problems here aren't just about flying. They're about uh, how you get data back from your flying devices in tricky situations. And so when you, you talk about the teams, so who are the teams? Do, do, are, they, are they big companies? Are they mums and dads? Who, who's participating? Oh, everybody. Yeah, it's, um, it's actually extremely diverse. So we, we also have a very open policy on teams, you know, like anyone, anyone can enter, basically. We, yeah. Of course, we have a conflict of interest process to make sure that if people are employees of sponsors, that they run it through their proper conflict of interest systems within their companies. <laughs> That's, yep. that's, that's relatively easy to handle. We're transparent about all that stuff. So we have a totally open policy, which is actually a very different to many competitions. Many competitions like run for maybe university students only or things like that. Yeah. We're, we're actually not so interested in that. We've, we've observed many university-only competitions over the years, and they're fantastic at training university students. I mean, they're brilliant at training university mm. students, but they don't necessarily progress the industry that well because of course each time you run the competition you've probably got a new set of students so they're, they're all then learning again from fresh so we've deliberately taken the tact of anybody can enter um, and often of course those teams do have university students in them and which is fantastic but we we say any anyone any anyone can come um, so those comp those yeah so we have we have a huge diversity so we do have university only teams we also have yep. hobbyist only teams we have industry teams we've have uh, you know married couple teams who do it as a hobby we have um, you know it, literally everybody right and, and all combinations all combinations of those people as well. Yeah, brilliant. So you mentioned before, um, you know, you guys are tired. You've been doing it for a little while, and, <laughs> right. um, and there's probably a few more years to go with this. Why do you keep doing it? What's what's your motivation behind you know pushing on while you're a full time? You know, you work full time, and I'm sure have other other things you could be doing. Oh, I mean, we see that. We, I mean, because we see the benefits, right? So we we can see the impact. Um, it's you know, it's it, so many people have taken part in this competition, and we keep running into people who are. Now, you know, I, I run into people at university who come up to me and say, oh, do you remember me? I was a high school student in the UAV, <laughs> you know. It's, uh, so I actually see, I actually see the translation from these high school students in the high school competition into, into university. And then we meet them in industry as well. You know, we, we see and they've, they've come through. Um, we, we see the impact in the technology. You know, some of the commonly used technology there that's used, you can see how it was um, helped be pushed along by the UAV challenge. And some classic examples are um, RF designs, radio modems, for example. Um, they, uh, they're now a very popular uh, 900 megahertz radio system used by many people in the UAV industry. Um, uh, that, that, that product was really pushed along by the UAV challenge and the sort of the, the, um, the difficulties we threw at, at them, they kind of uh, they, they developed a fantastic radio to solve that problem, which has become yeah, right. uh, ubiquitous. Um, the Ardu pilots um, autopilot system that's now used, you know, by over a million users worldwide. Again, that wasn't created 
for the UAV challenge, but the UAV challenge has, we, we can absolutely see has helped push it along, you know, so many of the features that have popped up in there, we've tried to, uh, you know, we've, we've tried to second guess what people will need and, uh, and um, some of the teams, particularly a team called Canberra UAV, um, mm -hmm. how are some of the core developers at the moment of RG pilots um, and they've been one of the most successful teams in the UAV challenge. They've, they've been really doing some very uh, positive developments in that open source autopilot. So we see that um, pushed along as well. So, so I guess really we can actually see the impact of the UAV challenge. It's hard to prove that, you know, should, had the UAV challenge not existed, would the, would everything be in the same state it is now? I mean, we don't know. We don't have a yeah. nice control experiment, but our gut <laughs> feel is we've, we, you know, we think we've helped. We definitely think, you know, we've helped push things along. So, so that's one of our motivations. And we, and we have another kind of selfish motivation, which is, you know, our co-founder Rod Walker, who unfortunately passed away in 2011, um, way before his time, um, you know, we, um, you know, we kind of feel we owe it to him because he was very passionate about um, pushing along the civilian UAV industry. So we, you know, we, we feel that we, you know, just to honour his memory, we, we, just, we just keep on going. Yeah, I think that's brilliant, you know, particularly developing the Australian industry and developing our own sovereign capabilities as, as we hear, you know, Karen Joyce talk about a lot and others talk about. I think it's, um, I think it's great that we've got people inside the country, you know, pushing it. Yeah, so, that's great. So where's the, where's the future of the challenge then? The, the current problem that you have at the moment with, um, you know, first responders getting more situational awareness, is that going to remain for a few years? Do you think it's going to change? It's hard to, yeah, so, I mean, so normally... Yeah, I mean, the first, the first UAV challenge task, the, um, the search and rescue task, took a very long time to solve that problem. So well, the first competition actually ran in 2007, and it wasn't until 2014 that uh, Canberra UAV, uh, actually that year four teams completed the challenge, Canberra UAV won it. Um, there was a points system, of course. Um, so it took a long time to solve that problem. Yeah. Yep. We, we then had a, a competition um, called Medical Express, which was about delivering... Um, on the ground, not via parachute, but to, well, actually delivering blood back from a farm. So this was a outback Joe who was on his farm and needed to get a blood sample back to uh, you know uh, his doctor. So it was about deploying a UAV, land at the farm. Outback Joe put in a blood sample, pressed a button, and the UAV flew off. Mm -hmm. um, that took. It actually wasn't technically completed. There was, but it was close. <laughs> it was close enough that after two running of the events, we didn't want to rerun it. It was, it, you know, having rerun it wouldn't have pushed the industry much further because it was so close. Uh, it was so close to being completed. So we decided to switch to keep on pushing, right, um, and not let everyone get bored. So, so that effectively took four years. Um, it's very hard to predict because we haven't actually, no one's launched missions yet in this one to see how okay. straightforward it is. Uh, my gut feel is... People won't solve it the first time. I just think it's it's too hard. Um, so I think again, it will take two or three runnings of this event to really nail, really nail this problem. So I, I would predict maybe it will be solved in oh, let's think, it's going to be two thousand twenty-three. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a couple of years to um, to right. do a bit more work before we get there. That's, right. um, that's great. Um, Hey, so talking, uh, I just want to get your thoughts broadly on, on the drone industry. Where do you see the drone industry heading, you know, more, more broadly and outside of the challenge? 
Um, I think I think really into this long distance stuff. I mean, it's even even with the current pandemic, and uh, it's it's obvious that people want to be able to deliver stuff to remote locations, which was you know the the previous UAV challenge mission, mm. uh, and just getting that um, embedded in into normal everyday life of people. Um, so I'm not talking about the delivering pizzas to people. I'm talking about you know delivering medicine you know out to more remote locations and retrieving retrieving samples and things like that i think that that really needs to become a uh, you know an everyday an everyday thing and i think that's what a lot of people would like to see and the technology really is getting there to do that now it's mm. um it's it seems quite viable but it but it is not an everyday thing yet right so uh, uh, yeah. are the barriers do you think for that Technology, regulation, legislation. Where do you think the barriers are for that in Australia, more specifically? I think, yeah, I think it's probably everything. Um, yeah, I think it's everything, and probably a few more trials and kind of um, proving proving the technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, in the remoter locations, the risk is lower, just naturally, because of it is more remote. So it's actually more an ideal thing to do than hmm. sort of city delivery stuff, which is obviously just by its very nature, higher risk. Um, hmm. So I, I think we're getting there. I think everyone's getting more comfortable with the long, the long duration flight stuff. Um, hmm. Getting the reliability up is, seems like it's, it's, you know, it's getting there. Getting long duration flying's getting there. Um, regulations kind of getting there. The one thing that might hold it up is the, is where where where's the risk reward kind of um, payoff? Well, that that sort of mm. balance between not having continuous communications to a UAV that's a long way away. Yep. You know, you know, is it acceptable to hear from it via a satellite link every five minutes? Um, do, you know, do, you know where, you know where, yeah, where 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 do you make where do you draw a line and and what's acceptable uh, and what's not acceptable? Um, and it and seems think, like that will come from more and more testing and um, I think more so, and more yeah. people becoming more, um, you know, risk uh, tolerant with some of these things and just, um, you know, less, less risk adverse. Um. That's right. And it, it depends. It depends what the benefits are. I mean, this is the perfect way we're already seeing it in the pandemic world. Um, you know, regulatory authorities are already fast tracking, you know, as people are developing new technology solutions to help um, medical professionals you know they're they're speeding stuff up there because there's a there's a risk versus reward balance right which Mm. in normal times um you can you know you don't take as many risks but in 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 current times you can see sometimes you can if the reward means it's sensible and and this is where also the um, this is why we always thought about it originally with the uav challenge getting this so-called public license to do stuff right so you know the people you'll hear this term the public license and that's the um this unofficial license that the general public gives anyone to do something so for example in australia we don't have a public license to have nuclear power for whatever reason for whatever reason there is there is no public license for nuclear power in australia the the general public seems to not want nuclear power Uh, in other Mm. countries there is a public license to have nuclear power um, in some countries, GM food, there's really no public license. 
people just are against it in other countries they're not right it mm. seems at the moment in australia there seems to be a public license for using uavs for you know saving people and humanitarian stuff and things like that most people you talk about to say when you talk about drones and say you know if they could do this and could do this would you think that's acceptable they'll go yes definitely right you know there seems to be a public license for that you know other things there may not be you know for certain surveillance things in the city is generally the public tend to be more negative so it's a bit more nuanced about whether there's a public license for uavs or drones in general it's if you know when when you get down into the actual applications you know the general public have kind of different opinions on this stuff so yeah yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. I think uh, I think that's a really important conversation to have, you know, across society more broadly. And I was involved in the AUS um, Nor uh, RPAS Noise Working Group uh, last yep. year that the Greek tour ran, and it was interesting. And, and a point I made similar about that public license is is making sure that we're applying a reasonable person standard. So, would a reasonable yep. person be frustrated at drones constantly flying over their house delivering pizza? Yeah. potentially yeah. would they be frustrated if someone was flying a defibrillator to somebody to start someone's heart you know potentially not so exactly, exactly. Um, applying <laughs> that, that that reasonable person standard and not necessarily just pandering to the people that are going to complain anyway no exactly that and things. that's actually similar to the nuclear thing most people are quite comfortable with our nuclear reactor at lucas heights because it uses it's used for medical grade yeah. you, know, yep. you know stuff right it's it's needed for all of our scanning equipment right so when you explain that to everybody they're like yep fine right? makes sense um, yep. makes sense right so it's as simple as that yeah brilliant hey um look if people want to get involved in the challenge both from a team perspective but potentially helping out on the on the planning side how, how would they go about that yeah, I mean, literally, yeah, you can contact us via uh, uavchallenge um, at gmail.com or go to uavchallenge.org um, and, you know, you can find all the contact details. But, uh, yeah, because we're always happy to see, you know, um, have volunteers and see who can help and, um, you know, and we've had many, many people do that in the past. You know, right down from people on the ground helping marshal. We've had volunteer photographers. We've, I mean, we've had all sorts of people. But it's... Um, um, all comers. It's a real industry challenge. It's everybody getting in together to, to make it happen. Yeah, and it's lovely to see. I mean, we have we have companies that are normally sort of competitors or fierce rivals. But, you know, when, when it comes to the UAV challenge, they actually all work together very collaboratively. <laughs> um, they Everybody can see the benefit of lifting the industry in general. Yeah. Um, it just makes sense, right? It just, yeah, there's, there's no reason not to work together. Yeah, and I think that's a big part in, in this industry as it continues to uh, to grow as well as that collaboration piece. We there's enough work for everybody. We should work out what we're best at, and then uh, and yeah. work with other people who can who can fill our weaknesses. Exactly. Hey, look, um, thanks so much, John. We we may uh, pull it up there. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time this morning. Um, I, I can absolutely see why you, you won that award uh, <laughs> last last week. I'm still filthy about it, but, uh, but I can see why you won it. <laughs> Obviously joking. And, uh, yeah, thanks so much for taking the, the time this morning. And uh, I will definitely see you in Dolby in 2021. Excellent. Nice to talk to you, Andrew. Bye. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.